It's the California Wine Country Podcast with Steve Jackson and Dan Berger. We taste, we laugh, we learn. All right, I'm very excited. Uh, We just got major funding approval from Hollywood, and I'll be producing and directing and co-writing the new documentary, (laughs) The Dan Berger Story. Brad Pitt is in negotiations to play Dan Berger. Yeah. It only makes sense. It only makes sense. As a young man. It's called, it's going to be called More Than Just Wine. <laughs> there we go. Dan Berger, go the that. longtime co-host of uh, California Wine Country on Wednesdays, is back with us. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Dan, your life has been so amazing. You know, it's funny how things go by and you don't realize that until somebody else points it out to you. But well, it's way, you know, it's my life. You've told me in bits and pieces over the years yeah. some things, and I finally went, you know, we got to do a best of, I mean, we got to do the Dan Berger story. Let's begin in the 50s. Well, let, let's note that he's provided us with a sheet with 32 individual entries of topics to discuss. And I have never been more impressed with Dan in my life than this sheet. <laughs> In the 50s, your parents, Joe and Francis, entered dozens of contests, and they won the national contest. Tell us in 25 words or less where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. Yeah. They was that wrote, their slogan? That was their slogan. No, they, they, the slogan was already out. And then yeah. Then you had to write a 25-word jingle to explain where the yellow went. My, where it did four, it go? Two o'clock in the morning. Well, my, it's a long story, but my parents were sitting up at... One o'clock in the morning, one when they're thinking they've written a series of these entries, and suddenly my dad comes up with this idea. He says, "You know, a bunch of these old terms, these old things. Yellow is no longer with us. It's gone. Everybody's using Pepsi in it now. So think about all these things that you got. You got uh, mustache wax, that's gone. Uh, high button shoes, those are gone. And he said, they said, well, let's put them all down.' So my mom." And my dad wrote down all these terms of things that don't exist anymore, such as handsome hacks. And uh, remember the handsome, handsome hacks from New York City? No, we're not that old, Dan. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is uh, horse-drawn carriages. And they, they wrote them all down. And around 1 o'clock in the morning, my dad noticed that, all, that some of these terms rhymed. So he said, well, why don't we make couplets and write them out as, as rhyming couplets? So they wrote a seven of them or six of them, and then they two chose the best four, and they made a 25-word statement. Actually, it was supposed to be a 25-word statement. They wrote down these things, and then they wrote the last two lines were, all these things have joined those ranks to Pepsodent, our heartfelt thanks. And that was the end of the jingle. And it look up, and then they count up the words, and it was exactly 25 words. They sent it in. They won Twenty-five thousand dollars. Whoa! In 1957. Amazing. <laughs> Where did you grow up, Dan? Brooklyn. <laughs> New York. New York. <laughs> I spent most of my summers for many, many years in Bay Ridge. Well, we we got out of there in 1949, so that was. Whoa. <laughs> uh, and you went where? It's Los Angeles, and we. I, that's where I grew up, and went to UCLA for couple of years and then went on to Cal State LA and got my degree in journalism. 
And you were part of the L.A. City High School Champion Barbershop Quartet called the Four Fs. And I don't think we can say that on <laughs> no, the radio. Was, was that a grade? <laughs> was Fairfax High School the Four Fs? We were all from Fairfax High School, so we were Four Fs. And we won the championship singing, There Goes My Baby. Now, among others. <clears throat> 1960 to 61, you formed a quartet called Three Bows and a Peep. <laughs> that was a joke. Three bows and a peep. There was two guys who were black from from Watts and me, and then a very significantly large human being by the name of Ginger, who was the peep. And it was the funniest onstage presence you ever saw because the first two guys would come out, and then I'd come out, and then the peep would would come out. She was pretty big. And you did concerts (laughs) at Christmas uh, at children's hospitals. Yeah. Then you sang the Messiah at many church uh, concerts, including several years in a row at a... Uh, Amy Semple McPherson's Temple. Wow. That was fun. In 63, from <clears throat> 62 to 63, you were in the UCLA a cappella choir. We performed uh, at the Hollywood Bowl, Pasadena Civic Auditorium. Wow. A couple of places like that. So you were very musically oriented. I was really music. I wanted to be a music major. I just didn't read music. So <laughs> it was very tricky when you're not reading music. <laughs> just remember Doa, dear, female, dear. Right. Ray yeah, that was before <laughs> Sound of Music came out. He didn't have that cheat sheet. Uh, all right. So let's move on to, uh, well, you covered a lot of sports. You were uh, named night sports editor at AP, the Associated Press. Uh, and then... You covered the track and field for the Associated Press at the Munich, uh, Munich Olympics in 72? Yeah, not exactly my happiest moment, but it was... Explain I how was that co- all happened. Well, I was That's covering what... track and field all over the United States. I covered track and field in 1972 at the Olympic trials in Eugene, Oregon, where, it's where I got my, in, my interest in wine came from that day. Then, uh, well, that's a story I'm going to have to rewind on. We'll, 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 we'll rewind on that. Keep going. So yeah. then we, uh, because the Olympics were being held in Munich that year, they sent me over to Munich. They sent me over a, a week early to cover a track meet in Garmisch, Garmisch Partenkirchen. And I went up to Garmisch for uh, 24 hours, and it was uh, ice cold. It was a fabulous event. The Olympic Games uh, were some of the most unbelievable performances I've ever seen in my life at 72 till the terrorists took over the Israeli quarters in the Olympic Village and the Olympic Village was cordoned off you couldn't get near it my boss sent me down there and said yeah I gotta get a, get a bunch of quotes I said from whom who's gonna talk to you uh, the, the interesting story there was that the uh, guards at the Olympic Village were all dressed in powder blue and the reason was they wanted to camouflage them from wearing military uniforms. They were all uh, German military, but they used powder blue uniforms. And it, 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 was, it was such a, a wonderful sight to see these people till you saw them in real action. And I saw them throw a friend of mine out of the village for <laughs> mouthing off. <laughs> and they took care of him pretty good. It so was, you were telling us off air, because I asked you about this, uh, you were in a small room as an AP reporter covering yeah. the Muni- the uh, Olympics in Munich. Yeah. And you had your radio on, and you heard this early yeah. in the morning. Around 5.50 in the morning, uh, I hear a bulletin come over the radio that says there's shooting uh, heard in the village. 
So I was out of there in about a minute, and I got down to the office. I was barely dressed, and uh, the office said... Like, uh, like you are now. Well, exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's hot in here. <laughs> it's very warm. I'm taking off clothes right and left, as you can see. Uh, but the fun part about this was fun part. It was no fun at all. But but the interesting thing was that everybody from every division, every department, whether it was the volleyball person or the swimming person, or you know, that was the year that Mark Spitz won all those medals. But he had won all those medals before the shooting happened. So a lot of what happened was that these people were already off their beats, and everybody jumped in. AP was really motivated to cover this stuff and did a brilliant job. It was incredible stuff. And, of course, Dan was working for AP at the time, the Associated Press. Uh, You covered a fatal Pan Am crash in the American Sonoma Samoa. Sonoma. <laughs> Close enough. Samoa jungle. Uh, let's see. 97 passengers who died. Uh, Out of 101 on board. Talk about that story. You've got a couple of days. I mean, it's a, it's a long, involved story, but I will try to cut to the chase. Were you in American Samoa at the time? No, I was at the office in Los Angeles. I was in the AP office in Los Angeles. The, uh, the plane had gone down 24 hours earlier in the jungle through a rain squall that was so thick that you couldn't see anything. Um, plane goes down in the jungle. People were, were dying everywhere. And uh, so the, my boss, I walked in at 9 o'clock one morning, and I said to the boss, hey. If you at need, AP in LA. At AP in Los Angeles. I said, if you need anybody to go to American Samoa, just to cover the plane crash. And he says, nah, we'll get it by phone. Don't worry about it. So I said, well, if you need anybody, I, I speak the language, so I'm, just send me. So he said, no, I'll think about that. But he says, forget it. We're not spending any money to send you over to Samoa just because of this plane. We'll get the story by phone. Well, the people in Samoa couldn't, basically couldn't even answer the telephone. So eight hours went by. And just as I'm leaving for home, he comes up to me and he says, you really want to go to Samoa to cover this thing? And I said, sure. He says, well, uh, I'll get you a ticket. You fly to San Francisco first, pick up the photographer, and then the two of you will fly on to Samoa. And I said, Which, what, are, what airline am I on? And he says, Pan Am. It's the next flight in from the plane crash. And I said, no, well, that's a little risky. He says, well, that's what you wanted. So as I'm walking out the door, he says, oh, incidentally, he says, what, what language do they speak over there? It's says, English. It's an American possession. <laughs> so how oh, I got over there. The, the plane crash turned out. He to thought be- you spoke Samoan. Exactly. <laughs> Son Berger, he speaks uh, Samoan. For no, uh, oh, I wasn't beating my chest in those days. Um, so I get over to Samoa, and my photographer was really clever, a uh, fa- fabulous guy who's still going strong at 94. Uh uh, Sal Veter was his name. Sal, one of the great photographers I have ever worked with in my life. The guy was a genius. But anyway, we get into the jungle. We had to uh, hire a taxi. Uh, there was a uh, shortage of oil on at the time. This guy had just filled up his tank, so we got him. We paid him 25 bucks for the whole day. He was thrilled. Uh, we, he drove us through the jungle and got us to the plane. And I picked up some stuff. He got some fabulous photos. And then we went to the Eisenhower Medical Center in Samoa, on, uh, in Pango Pango, and we ended up with a, uh, an interview with uh, one of the four survivors. And the interview was fabulous. He was a guy who was from Scottsdale, Arizona, who had been the Olympic swim coach for the United States team. And the only reason he survived the crash, no, by the way, no one on that plane suffered a single traumatic injury. They all died 
from smoke inhalation because the seats had been covered with a smoke retardant that when it smolders, it produces cyanide gas. Jeez. And everybody died of cyanide gas inhalation. But Dick Smith, the, the Olympic swim coach from Scottsdale, survived because he could hold his breath for more than a minute. And he held, he took, he smelled, what he smelled was, he said, that's cyanide. It smells a little bit like, you know, like almonds. As soon as he smelled it, he knew it was cyanide. He took one deep breath, got down next to the ground, uh, the floor floor of the plane, and crawled to the exit and jumped out into the jungle. It's the Dan Berger story. (laughs) At least part one, we're going to have to do parts two and three, and then I've got to get the money to make a a documentary on this. (laughs) We got to take a break. We'll be back with Dan Berger and the Dan Berger life story when we come back on KSRO. We're doing a segment called Dan Berger's Life Story. It is fascinating. And uh, of course, Dan is co host of California Wine Country every Wednesday. And he brought a few in with him today. Well, we don't let him through the door without <laughs> some wine, but. Uh, in 1975, working for the Associated Press, you covered the search for Patty Hearst in San Francisco for the AP. I was a Los Angeles-based uh, general assignment reporter as well as sports writer, and they sent me to uh, cover the Patty Hearst uh, situation up in uh, because remember he was uh, Randy Hearst was dealing with uh, a guy by the name of Bill Walton, which at the time was a great basketball player, and one of his friends was an attorney who also represented the Symbionese Liberation Army. Right. So that's why they sent me, because I knew Bill Walton. So they sent me up to San Francisco for about two and a half weeks to cover Patty Hearst. And that during that situation, I won't go into the details, but I had a there was a phone that was being commandeered by a UPI reporter, and it was really my phone, and he wouldn't let me have the phone back, so I cut and the And back belt. in those days, UPI and AP were very competitive. Very competitive. We That was my enemy. So when he grabbed my phone, he wouldn't let me have my phone back, I cut the cord with my little knife on my... Now, so I still have For folks who only deal with cell phones these days, we're talking about like a landline. This was a landline, yeah. the only thing we had, and I cut the phone call. The best part about the story really was how I screwed all the other reporters, but that's what I did was I found that in the lobby, in the upstairs lobby of the hotel that we were in waiting for the press conference to occur, uh, there was a telephone, it was a house phone, and I took the voice box out of the house phone about an hour before the conference, the teleconference, so that we, nobody else could use the phone except me. I put the voice box in my pocket. So when it was... (laughs) When the conference was all over with, all the reporters dashed out of the room like crazy, and I was hanging back because I knew that that phone was dead. Yeah. So as soon as they got all finished, they all tried to use it, couldn't use it. Again, for folks who aren't familiar with it, on old phones, if you unscrewed the part of the phone in which you spoke, there was a piece you could take out. Right. And unless you knew it was gone, you would be talking and nobody would be hearing what you're saying. Precisely. So that's what I – but I had the voice box in in my pocket. So and this is an old rotary phone. That's right, old rotary phone. So I, they, they all ran downstairs looking for a public phone, and I calmly phoned my story into the office and beat everyone by about six minutes. Hey, in those days, six minutes is like, is like two hours. So I beat UPI in a lot of stuff. I, 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 look, I walked on the beach with Richard Nixon. I made, made myself 
looked like a, like a, uh, a Secret Service guy. So I had had a suit in the back of my car, and I put a little button in my lapel that looked like a Secret Service lapel button, and I was far enough away so they couldn't tell what it was. And I walked on the beach with Nixon. And did you talk to him at the time? No, 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 no. This was this was where they, they, they he was inspecting the oil spill in Santa Barbara County, if you recall that. So I was out there. I got I got all kinds of visual notes for my story. You were quite the little sneak, weren't you, Dan Berger? Oh, listen, when Ronald Reagan was governor, I did all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and it was all legal. Pray <laughs> tell. And Thank t- you for making that clarification. I, I snuck into a, 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 a conference that was being held on behalf of the student council. And I just told them I was the associate student council. There was no such thing, but I just said I was. Mussed up my hair and dirty up my shirt and drag myself into this midnight conference in the in the uh, it's a long involved story but i had to they're all long back, i had to, i had to, i had to uh set up the telephone usage because the only phone that was available was in the fire station and there was no dial at all didn't dial out but i had the phone number for it so i had a a guy in a local community at isla vista call me at exactly midnight on this phone and then I fed him the story, and he called the AP and got the story in about two hours ahead of UPI. <clears throat> Unbelievable. I told you that this was a great story. It's going to have to be more than just oh, yeah. one segment. Now, this I would not have expected of you. You've written a book about basketball. <laughs> yeah, well. It's called Basketball, the Sports Playbook, uh, yeah. published by Doubleday. Yeah. Like a real publishing company. A real, Yeah. yeah. It was part of a series that they wanted, and they, they had a guy in New York who was writing it. All the books were being written in New York. And my, my, the book that was being written on basketball turned out to be a complete dud when it came to the editor. The editor said, we've got about three weeks. Can you get a book written out of somebody else? And so this guy, Mel, who I'd never met before, calls me on the phone. He says, I hear you know something about basketball. I said, yeah. So he says, can you do the book? I said, Sure. So he says, who is he going to get as your expert? And I said, Pete Newell. Well, Pete Newell was the University of California basketball coach. Mm-hmm. And this guy says to me, you can't get Pete Newell. I said, he was on the phone with me three minutes ago. You want another? I can call him back. So I sat down with Pete Newell and did the book in three weeks. It was fabulous. Wow. <laughs> it is Dan Berger. It's Dan Berger's life uh, story. And I'm going to be reaching out all my wealthy friends to uh, help us produce a documentary. George Clooney has called in asking to be considered in place of Brad Pitt to play Dan Berger. All right. I know I get a chance to play Clooney. Yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> You're in the seat where he calls into the drive asking to play you. <laughs> all right, we've got to take a break. We'll be back with more of Dan Berger and his life story, which is fascinating. There's a lot more yet to cover. Uh, we'll be back on KSRO. You all know Dan Berger, the great wine guy in uh, Northern California, a co-host of California Wine Country every Wednesday on The Drive. We're doing today Dan Berger's life story. This is amazing, and it really should be a, a filmed documentary. <laughs> and we just got started. We're going to have to, since we don't have enough time, to, to cover everything that you have done uh, but let's go back to uh, the search for Patty Hearst in San Francisco. Uh, in San Francisco, and you made headlines when you cut the telephone cord of a reporter from the rival UPI. And I, as I mentioned earlier, AP and UPI were just enemies. Absolutely. And I knew that because in '72, when I started in radio, 
we had both AP and UPI machines in the newsroom. And a lot of the other news people would go, go to AP first, always. AP was a better... And UPI doesn't exist anymore. Well, not to any degree. There is a version of it owned by a Mexican multinational. It's a long story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's not, the, it's not the same as it was. Uh, I had a lot of uh, wonderful connections with a, a UPI reporters. I love them dearly, but I like to beat the hell out of them on the stories. And it was fun to do it because every now and then, like the, the, the day that Don Drysdale retired from baseball, I was in the Dodgers clubhouse. And uh, the UPI reporter comes out of the, it was the, they're playing the Cubs that afternoon. And the Cubs clubhouse, they had won. So the, Alex, the reporter for UPI, goes into the clubhouse for the, for the Cubs. And he comes out just about the time I was leaving the Dodger clubhouse. I got the story on Don Drysdale retirement, which nobody knew about at the time. It was completely unexpected. I was the only guy in the, in the room. And in fact, Los Angeles Times hadn't even gone in and got the story. So I had it. So Alex comes out of the Cubs clubhouse. He says, anything happened in the Dodger clubhouse? And I said, no. <laughs> they called Alex at home. <laughs> uh, we talked about your uh, book, Base- Basketball, the Sports Playbook, published by Doubleday. Done in three and a half weeks. <laughs> you worked one year as a writer and editor for the National Football League. Well, I took the job because I needed to. I would, I'd been with AP for ten years, and I was tired of the possibility of being a lifer. The, the old story: if you're a lifer, you're you know, you're, what is your life like anymore? So I said I got to take a job elsewhere. So I, National Football League offered me a position. I took it. Uh, it was fun. It. Uh, I had a chance to have an office that actually was. Uh, a man to buy some uh, very bright people, but all football related. Everything was football, 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 you know, 24 hours a day. And I did a lot of work on uh, trying to sophisticate some of the writings that they had been doing in their magazine called Pro. And Pro Magazine had been very literate, but it got better after they'd hired four of us at the same time. All four of us were pretty talented folks, and they were all journalistic uh, backgrounds. And uh, my time with the National Football League was fabulous, and I enjoyed it every every second of it. But I knew I I had to get back into real journalism. Now, it was about this time when you were doing all this sports reporting that wine became something that you started to write about. Yeah, I was just going to segue to that, too. Explain that. Uh, The wine stuff came about as a result of too many late nights covering sporting events. I was covering basketball. I was covering football. I was covering track and field all these events would always end at 10 p.m and all the sports writers would get together for dinner we'd go out and you know we'd be in eugene oregon we'd be in denver we'd be in you know seattle wherever and it was 10 p.m we'd go out and the only places that were ever open were steakhouses so for year after year at every time i went out to an event to cover something it was always steak and baked potatoes and beer at the end of the evening and one night in 1972 I said, I'm, I'm sick and tired of steak and, and baked potatoes. I'm done with that. So we went to the Hotel Eugene after one of the Olympic trials in track and field. And Hotel Eugene was open late that night. It was a Saturday night. And we went in and ordered some f- seafood. It was the first time I'd had something other than a steak for a long time. Ordered a bottle of, of uh, German Riesling, which I loved. 
And the wine came to the table. The guy said to me, what do you think of the wine? I said, I think it's terrible. And he smelled, he, he took a glass from me, he smelled it. He said, you know, that's corked. He says, you may have a career in, jer- in uh, wine. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, the average person wouldn't know what a corked wine is. And I said, I don't know what a corked wine is, but that's not any good. And he said, yeah, well, you, you got a pretty good palate already. So he replaced the bottle. It was clean as the whistle. And that began me on my new tri- uh, trail to finding something else in life besides beer. And you began to judge wine competitions throughout the United States back in, like, 81. My first competition was in Sonoma County. It was the uh, it was the... the Harvest Fair wine competition, and uh, it was being done up in Healdsburg. We had a lot of fun with it, and I learned a lot. I was sitting next to Andre Chelichev, my first competition. You can't complain about that. How did you get into that position? They invited me. They, they called. They said, well, you've been writing about this wine stuff for a couple of years. You want to be a judge? They invited me, so I drove up from San- – I was in San Diego at the time. I drove up to Healdsburg and judged, and they thought the results were pretty good, so they said, we'll have you back. So, is that when you moved? When did I you moved move in to Sonoma County? Here, eighty six. Oh, but it was eighty one when I first started judging here. But then, right after I started judging here, it was, became, became obvious Sonoma County is really a place to to live if you could. So I waited five more years before they finally offered me the position. Wow. What a story. This really should be a documentary film. I'm working on it. Okay. Uh, Harry Styles just phoned in. He would like to be considered for the young Dan Berger. Sounds good to me. Particularly the singing with Barbershop Quartet. There we go. There we go. Yeah. I could see that. Uh, We're going to do more segments of uh, Dan Berger's life story because we don't have time to continue because there's so much more to talk about. Yeah, so stop living a life, Dan. We can't catch up. We'll pause pause for the moment. He'll be with us next Wednesday on California Wine Country, and then we're going to continue probably on Friday afternoons like this to uh, do the Dan Berger story. It's a nice way to end the week. Yeah. As long as he keeps bringing wine. I'll bring more wine. (laughs) No problem at all. The great Dan Berger. Bless you, my son. (laughs) It's an honor uh, to talk about all this, and uh, it's an honor to have you for so many years uh, as the co-host of California Wine It's a delight to know you. You're you're the pro, you know. Somebody's got to be. That's right. Well, as an amateur... One of the things that I've really enjoyed about doing this show in the time that I've done it is getting to know you and getting to have a friendship with you. So I what appreciate a nice, that. What a nice tribute. Not Thank me. Thank you so much. Notice that he says not me. <laughs> Who? <Okay. laughs> We're all together in this, right? <laughs> all together now. Hallelujah. All right, Dan. Thanks. We'll see it's you a Wednesday. And, Absolutely. Uh, soon we'll be doing part two of the part Dan two? Yeah. Burger story. Yeah, plenty of it.